Hello, everybody, and welcome to WhatsApp, a space for Asian American progressive voices in California. My name is Albert Kutchpim, and I'm joined here with Ji Young Park, who is the co host. Here's WhatsApp today the 2020 general election in California. I'm really thrilled to have Natalie Matsuoka as the guest for today. And um, she is the chair of the Asian American Studies Department at UCLA. And so we'd like to start off with a icebreaker question. And so um, in this icebreaker question, you could also talk a little bit about your background and your history too. The question for you is, uh, what is your favorite place to visit from the culture you identify with? I saw that question. Thanks both for inviting me here. Um, and, and so and for a little bit of the advanced uh, notice here on the on the questions. Um, <laughs> hi, everyone. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Um, uh, you know, the, I think that the uh, fourth generation Japanese American uh, from California um, my uh, mother's family was part of the first wave um, of Japanese uh, immigrants to into the West Coast. They, uh, a lot of the family came through Hawaii into California. So um, part of my attraction to Asian American studies, you know, as a young person and a college student was really, you know, for the first time seeing how uh, really, in fact, my family history was part of that um, Asian American history right into California. Um, but because we are a longstanding California family, um, I think, you know, the culture is always an interesting question. I think in general, especially after leaving California for uh, over 11 years and then returning back, I think I really started to uh, develop a, a real cultural attachment to being Californian. And so every time someone asks me about um, cultures that you feel attached to, I think really now my answer um, is um, is a strong Californian identity. It's it's I'm so pleased and and and, and proud to be back um, here in California and teaching um, at the public university um, at UCLA. So um, I think that, so that's my answer. So I think my, the culture I feel attached to is really a Californian culture. Um, although I know typically that that question is, I'm not sure if you were trying to get at uh, uh, ethnic background. Um, and um, the, I was trying to think about this last night about, you know, what's the, what was my favorite Californian place? Cause that's really hard. I'm originally from Northern California or Central Valley. Um, Stockton, California, um, but uh, I've, uh, we have a lot of roots here in LA um, because that's actually the original location of uh, my family's immigration. Mm-hmm. But actually, interestingly, I think our family vacations were always in the on the Central Coast, so the Monterey area. So I know I really do have a fondness for the um, the Upper Bay area, Northern California, kind of Central Coast, which is really my most favorite place, and most I think it's most one of the more beautiful places in in California. So I think that that would be my um, my long winded answer to that question. Very cool. Very cool. I I, I like that answer. (laughs) So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you do um, in your job? 
Yeah, so I, um, my current position is chair of the Asian American Studies Department, but I actually am a trained political scientist. I got my PhD in political science at UC Irvine um, and um, have historically held positions in the political science department. Uh, primarily as a, you know, my, my, my attachment to politics is really as a researcher um, with a strong interest in uh, public policy and thinking about um, representation of our knowledge and our understanding about voters of color in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and I spent most of my career trying to intervene in the political science profession uh, by pushing the profession to think about um, including voters of color in our analyses. Um, historically, thinking American politics, um, African Americans have held a a special place, particularly for the Democratic Party, in terms of the political power that they wield. Uh, but over time, I think we've seen the rising power of Latinos. Um, and then now today, what's really striking is the growing political power of Asian Americans. And so part of my uh, hiring at UCLA was to really um, uh highlight UCLA's uh, perfect position uh, in LA um, as a center of research for studying uh, voters of color and to uh, better integrate uh, more attention on Asian American voters specifically for for our research in the UCLA political science department. So um, that is uh, my longstanding interests and and uh, I've written a, a few books you know kind of thinking about um, other areas like um, the census and the rise of uh, mixed race or multiracial identity that can be identified on the census um, and I've done some other work really thinking about you know kind of public opinion and uh, public opinion changes over time and what general trends have you noticed in the last election cycle with respect to people of color? So what's really interesting, I think, um, about 2020 uh, is there's, I mean, I think there's a lot of interesting things. I think the most important and most interesting thing coming from the perspective of of the role the voters of color play, um, I think, is really the increased public and media attention on voters of color and the importance of voters of color, particularly for the um, the Democratic Party and the Democratic Party's ability to control, uh, right, the Congress, um, take the presidency, um, state state and local level uh, offices, et cetera. Um, I think that that's really something. When I started graduate school in the early 2000s, I was part of a young generation of scholars who really saw very little discussion in the public about voters of color, um, even attention for African-Americans. And so I think in really within two decades time, we went from very little conversation, you know, almost nothing to, you know, you can open up any even main, I mean, I'm not even talking about ethnic newspapers, but any mainstream New York Times, Wall Street Journal, CNN, MSNBC, um, and you will find a story, right, about the importance of a particular racial or ethnic minority group 
um, either at the national level or at the local level. Um, I've been really struck about how many media inquiries. Uh, it used to be I get media inquiries about generally voters of color because that was that's really my my general expertise. But this season has been striking about specifically people searching me out to talk about Asian American politics specifically, so Asian American voters specifically. Um, for this Georgia election, I mean, it's I, I've gotten uh, multiple requests. I, of course, have to say, like, I'm a Californian, and as I just said, I'm a strong California-identified person, and and uh, so I don't know a lot about Georgia politics. Um, and they'll, 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 they'll want to talk nonetheless because they want to at least get a sense of any understanding about Asian American voters um, because uh, any small movement, as we're seeing today, um, really can swing an election. And so um, that's, I think, been one of the most striking things. Uh, I think just as uh, a lot of us in the profession have talked about just the astounding uh, public attention um, on Asian American voters. Um, I think in terms of actual politics, um, one of the things that's been somewhat surprising, but I don't necessarily think uh, completely unexpected is a slight right is the slight rightward shift in terms of the lo- slightly larger proportion of voters of color willing to support Trump um, or willing to support Republican candidates. You know, we were looking at Orange County as this, you know, the, the wonderful future of a blue wave politics, um, you know, looking at the past two uh, elections and, and seeing that Democratic shift right in Orange County. And this last election, we saw that very clear um, rightward shift with Republicans um, taking back their seats. Um, and I think Orange County is a really great example of, you know, kind of how much is still in transition um, when we're thinking about voters of color and specifically Asian American voters, um, because I think the idea that they're this solid Democratic voting bloc um, never in actually in the data, I would say, has never really something that we could ever truly make that assumption. Um, but because elections, you know, you kind of tend to see this. We kind of saw from Barack Obama and then um, the kind of writing of that of the Obama wave uh, through 2016. We saw a lot of Democratic support for communities of color. And so I think there was this, a lot of this attention to this blue wave. Um, but I think we look then now today and we can see that, um, you know, the historic data, the trends, you know, I think that there's not necessarily this kind of, you know, um, this um, solid or committed democratic support um, for Asian Americans. And, and I think it, 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 even even as well, you know, for Latinos. Um, uh, and so it's really not a lock for the Democratic Party. I never knew how small the AAPI community in the country was because I'm in this LA bubble and really in this like California bubble. And some some outlets were saying that Asian Americans are 4% of the population in the US. And I was astounded. <laughs> um, and then as I researched further, I saw other statistics that were like five or six percent, but even that, um, even that small percentage, um, really was so surprising to me because I live in LA, um, and so it wasn't surprising to me then 
um, that in some of the statistics, the charts, the Asian Americans weren't even, APIs weren't even on those charts still. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, part of the fact that Asian Americans aren't highlighted in a lot of national conversations, you know, partially, I think, is um, racial bias. But then there's there is a more objective answer, I guess you could say, in the fact that there's just not a lot of reliable data in a lot of areas of this country um, to give a more accurate pulse of what Asian Americans believe, what their politics are, the challenges that they face, because they represent such a small share of the population. I mean, even but and even for California, you know, I'm trying to do this analysis of um, uh, Asian American voting on the propositions that were on the ballot this last election, and we are trying to identify. Um, neighborhoods that had a threshold of greater than 50 percent, where Asian Americans make up a greater than 50 percent um, of a given neighborhood, right? To try to kind of think about like where are, you know, um, kind of majority Asian American neighborhoods in California. And you would think even in California with such a large Asian American population, there would be a lot of those. But really, it really is only the Bay Area and, um, and LA and Orange County. Right. Like going into San Diego, we were having a really hard time identifying neighborhoods that were a large enough Asian-American population for us to do an analysis. And basically most of the Central Valley, we basically kind of did this um, uh, um, you know, kind of compromise of looking at Sacramento because it's like somewhat diverse. But even then, you know, we're looking at Asian-American populations that are really like maybe 30 35% of a neighborhood. Um, and so I think even for California, once you get out of the major, the two major metropolitan areas, Asian America represents a really small share. Can I ask you one follow-up question? Where does the funding for these studies on AAPIs and AAPI communities with respect to politics um, come from? Honestly, right now, I think most of it does come from one of two sources. The most, you know, kind of the, the, the people that kind of give the most, the largest amounts of funds um, are uh, nonprofit or philanthropical associations like um, the Russell Sage Foundation um, or, you know, kind of some of these different uh, foundations that fund research on uh, communities of color. Uh, Ford found, you know, Ford, the, the Ford Foundation, Mellon, et cetera. Um, the National Science Foundation does some research, um, but this is kind of where, where the lack of attention on Asian Americans, I think, in many ways does hurt because foundations really want to fund, right, things that they think that the public is really interested in. Um, and so you do, but you do see these large grants offered uh, to study Asian American communities, oftentimes not necessarily just politics, but, you know, kind of generally like issues that um, are, you know, are challenges for Asian America um, or Asian Pacific America. And um, a lot of the work though in the academy is really funded by the universities themselves. So faculty um, can uh, access research funds from universities um, to fund things like, you know, graduate assistance and that kind of thing to collect data. Um, that's effectively a lot of what my research is funded by is, is by the universities that I work for um, and we 
do a lot of just kind of manual collection. The students go and look for, um, you know, for precinct for level returns, um, uh, or we look at um, uh, registration, voter registration records. We maybe try to collect some public opinion data, um, et cetera. So um, a lot of it, especially given the fact that there's not a lot of, you know, this kind of national attention to Asian America, um, uh, I would say, you know, anecdotally is being funded by institutes of higher education. Cool. Uh, yeah. So uh, I, w- I was just going to follow up a little bit about the notion of um, kind of the givenness, quote unquote, of um, Asians being a democratic block. And um, like that, that report um, that you mentioned, Natalie, about the propositions in California, um, is that going to be available soon? Or what's, what's the timeline for that, too, so that we can kind of help to back up the analysis that we're going to be talking about a little bit? Right. Yeah. So I we're going to publish a policy report um, through um, actually the Asian American Studies Center and the Latino um, Policy um, and Politics Institute at UCLA. Um, ideally, I think our target is the end of January, the last week of January. So mm-hmm. ideally, we should be able to share that with the audience um, in about a month. Awesome. Cool. So um, end of January. Sounds good. Um, what do you think were some key differences from uh, California um, in the 2020 primary and previous elections um, regarding how AAPIs voted? And, um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Barack Obama's uh, blue wave and et cetera. Um, you know, how, how is that different in both the 2020 primary, the 2020 general election, as well as the 2016 general general and 2016 primary elections in California. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the, the most important thing to point out, I think, is the, um, the really astounding growth of Asian American voters since 2008. Um, so one of the most consistent patterns is the um, exponential rise of new voters Um, new Asian American voters being added to the electorate with every presidential election. So we are the fastest growing electorate um, in the country. Um, We're growing in many ways faster um, than even Latino populations in many areas um, because we are, I think we're finally seeing that transition um, you know, from the post-1965 immigration wave, right? So now we're, the Asian American communities are really um, sizable. Um, they are, they have citizenship, right? And then that natural transition then to converting then to becoming voters. Um, there has been a lag because in terms of um, Asian American um, adults, if you look at, you know, kind of those 18 years old or older, um, you know, it's over 70% of Asian America is, was born outside of the United States, right? And so there is this nat- there's been a natural lag in Asian America because there's been this whole process of immigrating, um, getting your, you know, residency or, you know, your green card and then getting citizenship and then becoming um, uh, an actual registering and then actually becoming a, a more consistent voter. Um, and so I think that there's in that way that that's why there's been this lag between the growth of the population overall and the growth of the electorate. And so we, I think we're finally seeing the growth of the electorate 
um, follow, right, that really impressive demographic, demographic growth of Asian America. So I think the most important thing that I really like to highlight to, to anyone who will listen, any, any media uh, or journalist that will listen, is really this importance of the, the electorate growth um, in Asian America. Um, that being said, um, because we know that Asian Americans are new voters, their vote choice is something that we are still really trying to get a handle of. So in other words, if they're going to vote Democrat or Republican um, on initiatives, what are their specific policy issue preferences? Um, these are all areas here where uh, I would say that in terms of data, we're really trying to get a better, better handle of because we really haven't been able to witness, right, this kind of, uh, this kind of sizable electorate for us to give um, a more national level assessment about where Asian American voters stand on specific issues. Um, and so this is what I mean about kind of what the data is that is that, you know, really, you know, a lot of what we know from historic data is that in terms of partisanship, um, Asian Americans are more likely to um, declare or, or feel a lack of party attachment um, then they are actually holding an attachment to a party, right? Um, and so if you give Asian Americans a choice, instead of just saying, are you a Democrat or Republican? And you just say, you know, who, how do you identify? Um, there are larger numbers of Asian Americans who would say like, I actually don't really identify as a party uh, with a party compared to whites and blacks. Um, in, in some cases, Latinos, but 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 uh, really compared to whites and blacks, and so we know that their partisanship attachment really isn't as strong as we would classically, you know, believe that voters, you know, once you become a voter, that you hold this really kind of strong attachment right to a party, um, and because that's the case, um, I often really try to make uh, um, a, a strong argument um, that you know this is the true swing electorate. Right, because uh, the partisanship is not well formed, um, and as a new immigrant group, you know, they're, we're learning about what issues you really care about, um, and um, you know, kind of how much you really, you know, what specific issues are actually going to swing your vote. These are all areas up for grabs in terms of thinking about an Asian American electorate, um, and so. You know, I think this idea that, um, you know, Asian Americans are the solid Democratic voting group, um, you know, while since 2008, we have seen really strong support for the Democratic Party um, with Barack Obama. Um, it's not necessarily something that's rooted in this kind of longitudinal pattern, right? So the longitudinal pattern actually suggests that there's really more of a lack of partisan attachment. Um, and so I think what we're seeing in 2020 is now, especially with a more competitive election, um, which we know then that um, leaders, parties, campaigns, then start really thinking about small, you know, every single vote counts. They start making specific micro-targeted messages to specific voters that that really can have an impact, right, for, for Asian Americans. So while the data is suggesting that there was a, a slight shift um, of more Asian Americans um, supporting Republican, the Republican candidates or for Donald Trump, um, I don't think that that's necessarily assessment that they're becoming Republican. 
it's more of a of an assessment of how flexible and malleable, right, the Asian American electorate is, but in in a better framing of this, of how the power of the Asian American electorate, because it's a swing um, electorate, right, could actually potentially hold some political power, particularly in really contested elections, like what we are seeing, what we really saw in 2020, um, where because um, uh, campaigns could possibly swing um, their vote, that they really could be right seen right as a powerful um, group of voters um, that need to be captured um, by any one given campaign. Just looking at my own parents, they're first generation Korean Americans, and when they first started voting, they were Republican. And then when they when the 92 uprisings happened, they switched to Democrat. Um, And then I would say that they are socially moderate and fiscally conservative. Um, And so I can definitely see how they are. They are swing voters. And I'm. 99% confident that Korean voters, if presented with, let's say, a Republican Korean mayor, mayoral candidate, would vote for that candidate, (laughs) regardless of party. Well, I mean, which was what we saw in Orange County. Yeah, I was just going to follow up by saying that, um, you know, given that California has about 16% of the Asian American like uh, population uh, that is able to vote, I believe, um, or, or some, somewhere like that. It, that includes mixed as well. But um, given, given that um, number, I mean, how much of that, I'm considering the Asian American voting a monolith, uh, it's very nuanced, right? And like Ji Young's point, like her parents are fiscally conservative and they have other values in terms of social. Um, I, I'm just thinking that that mix is very different. And how much is the influence of like political party versus like just lack of knowledge um, about issues and about the politics in general? Because I mean, when, when we're talking and discussing about electoral politics here, we're, we're assuming some things about informed citizens and we're assuming some things about like, um, you know, being able to register to vote and all these other barriers that are usually in place for people of, you know, uh, immigrant families if if you if you don't speak english you're not likely going to participate even if you are a citizen um and all these other barriers so i'm just wondering how much of of those like barriers are there that we can address um as you know we we want to bring in uh, the AAPI community into the fold when regarding progressive issues and things like Medicare for All, which has overwhelming support. I mean, Ji Young's mentioned this before in um, previous episodes. There's like 80 or like an overwhelming majority of Asian American Pacific Islander community would support Medicare for All. So, I mean, um, like... I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, Natalie. Like, um, basically, how far can electoral politics go? So my question is, how effective um, 
is it that we focus on certain values that um, would identify with these communities and how do we like I guess maximize and target our efforts to actually educate people and uh, bring people up to speed because I, I think you know direct action and a couple other ways to um, push the the society into a direction that we need it to be um, is another way to really um, kind of affect change in a way but that's just um, yeah something I'd like to hear if you have any thoughts on it. Yeah, I mean, the type of information that voters have at their disposal when making a decision is the you know perennial political science <laughs> question, right? So, you know, kind of what what is something, what is the information that someone's using to make their decision? You know, how much of it is emotional? How much of it is identity? You know, how much of it is truly kind of a rational calculus, yep. a cost-benefit analysis, um, you know, and, and all of the analysis of, on white voters would suggest that all of these things are at play, right? Um, and one of the things that um, a lot of political scientists uh, that I've worked with that I and that I admire um, have been trying to do in terms of intervening um, into the assumptions about what we think about what's going on in the voter's mind is to think about, you know, the unique circumstances that immigrant voters um, have um, or, or are working with uh, when we're when they're trying to cast a ballot. Um, and, you know, the first one is, you know, this idea of political socialization. So, you know, the, the, the fact that Asian American, a larger share of Asian Americans would uh, rather decline to state a party, does that really mean that they like don't have a partisanship? Um, or does that mean that perhaps uh, they uh, don't have enough information about what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican or what it means to be a Green Party, that therefore, since they don't know enough about those those parties, right, that they don't necessarily feel any kind of attachment to it. Um, and so we, what we do know is that uh, for immigrant voters, you know, uh, information in many ways is is um, many more powerful uh, possibly than it is for native born voters um, who have been, you know, kind of long term social. They have they've they spent their entire lives in the United States. Their parents are American. You know, a lot of being a Democrat or Republican is like really built into their identity um, and it's much more emotional. You know, so typically, you know, as a uh, as a um, political science professor, you know, we teach uh, intro to American government in the fall, right? So in the fall, it's always this kind of really interesting time to be teaching intro American, especially in election year, because the interesting thing here is that, you know, we're teaching about, um, you know, voting and elections. Um, and then October, I always make this timing where we talk about political socialization in October, um, because that's, that's when Halloween is. And so like the whole kind of, you know, cute story about Halloween is that for every presidential election, you want to see like, because this year, unfortunately, did not happen because our, our children did not trick or treat this year. But you wanted to actually count how many um, costumes, how many children were in the Democratic candidates costume versus the Republican candidates. <laughs> right? so how many of them were, both, were dressed up as like Hillary Clinton versus how many were dressed up as like Donald Trump. Right. Because. The parents are not dressing them up ironically. <laughs> They're dressing them up because they really like they, they really deeply identify and they and they're socializing their children right to deeply identify right with one side or the other. 
And so this is kind of this, you know, kind of, you know, kind of this joke, um, you know, and kind of, poli- and, you know, kind of when we teach political science, which is that, you know, come Halloween time, you might be able to get a good prediction about which candidate's going to win based on how many children's costumes, right, get sold. Um, how many Democratic, you know, candidates' costumes get sold over Republican costumes, because that's a good indicator, right, about like which parents are voting for which party. Um, and so this is, this is the, you know, kind of multi-generational American story, right, about how we socialize for politics, whereas for immigrant families, right, that kind of that that kind of long term socialization isn't happening. Um, And so in that way, offering, you know, voter education, you know, mobilization um, campaigns, right, these things are really in many ways, you know, you could say much more meaningful for immigrant communities than they are for Native-born American communities, because for Native-born American communities, it's already a strong attachment, you know, and what we know is a lot of times people don't take in new information, they really just filter through what they want to hear, mm-hmm. right? So yep. this kind of you know gives the uprise like cable network television, right? Like mm-hmm. you're just listening to the news network that you want to hear from, even though you say you're trying to learn, but you're really choosing <laughs> the type of message that you want to hear from, right? Um, whereas you know you could argue for immigrant communities actually, since that's not so deeply entrenched emotionally into your identity, right? That information actually probably um, does work in the way academically we hope information works for you, right? Which is that it really does, it really can go into your calculus. Immigrants can, immigrant uh, voters can think about, right? You know, does this match with what I want? I didn't know about that. And so now, now that I learn about that, right, what, you know, how does that make a difference? Um, And so this in many ways, I think should be our greatest push here for Asian America is that, Um, rather than kind of just being like, oh, they're going to be Democrats or they're going to be Republicans, right? Is that for us to focus our efforts on voter education, right? About why this issue matters for you um, and put Asian Americans in, you know, as the protagonist of their, of of the story of 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 any given issue, right? So why is it that that's going to matter for them the most? Um, You know, I think what we're seeing for the topic of affirmative action is that um, that is the power of um, media messages um, and campaign messages. So what the data is showing is we, in California here, we're voting um, on Prop 16, which was to reinstate um, affirmative action back into um, uh, governmental hiring and uh, UC admissions. Um, It... um, in our analysis, uh, what we're finding is that in um, Asian American neighborhoods, um, Prop 16 um, was um, more likely to be opposed than in neighborhoods uh, populated, uh, in particular by you know, in, in specifically compared to African American neighborhoods, um, and even for example, in the case of the Bay Area, um, you know the white, you know, kind of liberal white voters, which were strongly supportive of affirmative action, um, uh, voted yes, um, whereas um, uh, a lot of Asian American neighborhoods in the Bay Area um, were voting no. Um, and so um, what we've, what I think, I think we've realized here is how powerful a lot of the messages have been in affirmative action of the story about how affirmative action really 
uh, you know, is, is damaging or is disadvantageous to Asian American students who are applying for colleges, right? That that message is something that um, really resonated. I think clearly what we're seeing in the, you know, based on the outcomes um, uh, for, for um, 2020 is that I think a lot of these messages um, that were being communicated over the campaign about how Asian Americans were being hurt, right, by um, um, affirmative action policies, I call it in, you know, kind of prestigious colleges, um, really resonated. Um, when in fact, you know, a lot of the data suggests that if you look at UC admissions data, right, Asian American admissions has actually gone down since the passage of Prop 209 in the late 90s. So you can see, if you look at longitudinal data, right, the proportion of Asian American students has gone down over time, um, you know, demonstrating actually the opposite of what a lot of the conservative narratives were being, were, were, that were being evoked, right, during the campaign. And so for me as an academic, right, this is kind of the, the, the lessons learned here about the role that we, the, the, the more powerful role we should have been playing in terms of disseminating you know, um, data and information about really what's been going on in regards to affirmative action, you know, rather than letting uh, some of the more, you know, you could say politicized or kind of political messages that were, were being discussed, um, you know, out there, um, um, you know, during campaign time. Would you say that was not always, I mean, that was the case for all the propositions too, like Prop 22 for the Uber and Lyft drivers and all the other um, props? What, what was the general trend? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, so let, uh, one of the things that we know, a truism, you know, about um, the um, initiative pro politics process in California is that, you know, uh, campaign dollars really matter. And, you know, really well-funded campaigns that can really craft uh, a convincing message to voters are the ones that are more successful. Um, does it necessarily reflect a politics about California? We're not really sure, right? It does reflect moneyed interest in California, but sometimes we're not really necessarily sure how much it reflects that, you know, Californians are really deeply um, socially conservative or, you know, fiscally conservative or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, um, and so I think, you know, the one thing I think important to note here when we talk about the initiative process in California is that, you know, these um, very well-funded campaigns that can craft a message do very well, primarily because, right, a lot of us don't have full the full kind of database information yep. about what reality looks like, what the possible implications are, you know, kind of what have you. Um, and so I think for, for sure what we already know for initiatives is how important information is, right, to the outcome of the campaign. Um, not necessarily just for Asian American voters, but for all voters. Mm -hmm. But I think in the case for Asian American voters, because we're becoming such a larger share of the California electorate, and because we're a new electorate along with Latino voters, Voter education, I think, should be much more of an emphasis. This is, I, I think, now looking at the 2020 data, I, I, I've got, I have a new crafted message here for moving forward, which is really this focus on voter education, right? Yeah. Yeah. With respect to the affirmative action point, where did you see that messaging come from in the various AAPI communities? Yeah, this I don't, you know, I have not done a systematic 
um, analysis of. Um, I only know from some general conversations with, uh, you know, kind of other activists, other academics, um, you know, that there was um, some well-funded, um, actually Asian-American um, conservative groups um, that were uh, strongly opposed and were really activating different channels. Um, you know, there are different communities, um, you know, kind of using different social networks. Um, I'm on a, um, a dissertation committee in the sociology department, a student, she's going to do some analyses of like social, what things on WhatsApp, you know, like messages on WhatsApp um, and different ethnic media um, to do an analysis of. So um, I, I can't necessarily say anything systematically for sure, but we um, we anecdotally um, are aware specifically in the Chinese immigrant community um, of a, you know, of a, um, strong messaging in the social media and ethnic media um, of a, a no on Prop 16 or, you know, a, an anti-affirmative action campaign that was going on. And I think, you know, especially the way that we run the data, um, you know, we were, we're looking at what we call high density Asian American neighborhoods and the Asian American group in California that really does live in high density areas um, are, are Chinese Americans or Chinese uh, Chinese um, uh, Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans. So you know, kind of the most densely populated neighborhoods in L.A. and in uh, the Bay Area really are specific, made up of specific ethnic origin groups, specifically the Chinese. So I think that our anecdotal information about some of the anti affirmative action um, campaigns that were going on within Chinese immigrant communities um, coupled with, I think, the geographic um, data that we're analyzing, I think, uh, would suggest that um, it's probably not necessarily all, you know, we're not really, and this is going back to Albert's point, you know, this is not about like all Asian American, you know, like, you know, it, as a whole, we're this block, um, and as a whole, the data suggesting that we were voting against, Asian Americans were voting against Prop um, 16, um, but I do think there's probably good amount of evidence to suggest that our, there are, you know, specific national origin groups that were against um, affirmative action. And probably if we can try to get some other analysis going to show that there are other Asian national origin uh, um, groups that weren't necessarily so opposed to affirmative action. Yeah, I'd love to know why, in particular, Chinese immigrants and Chinese Americans were so mobilized around this issue. Um, that would be interesting to know. That I think that that's definitely going to be an important question in terms of us getting a pulse of the politics that exists within Asian America. Um, you know, to what extent um, this is a specific issue-oriented type of movement, that there are specific issues that groups have really focused on and they mobilize on, or if this is, you know, more of a larger ideological movement, you know, for example, that becomes something more like partisanship that we're seeing this, you know, kind of um, partisan sorting among specific national origin groups. Um, but I do, yeah, I, I think it's, it is interesting why certain issues have caught on um, in certain national origin groups. Um, for Chinese Americans, we are seeing, I think anecdotally, um, affirmative action is, um, anti-affirmative action is an issue. Um, and another issue is um, 
what they're calling data disaggregation. Um, and so efforts to fight against F, um, data efforts to disaggregate um, Asia, America into national origin groups. So you know how like when you have census data, instead of reporting something as just Asian, that um, we've had longstanding advocacy to break down the Asian category into, right, like Chinese, Japanese, Korean, South, Southeast, you know, the, the different Southeast Asian groups, because we know that there are different challenges for different groups. And so um, I think many of the more leftist and progressive groups have really fought for disaggregating the data so that we can show the nuances of the challenges that different communities are facing. Whereas there is a movement um, uh, uh, in some segments of um, Chinese immigrant communities that are trying to fight that because of my understanding, because of the belief that that's really disadvantaging. Um, you know, it's kind of calling attention to um, certain certain groups being, you know, kind of more or less privileged. Um, and they feel that that perhaps may also be um, uh, speaking into things like affirmative action policies, right? So, you know, kind of then blanketly accepting or rejecting um, um, applications based on your national origin. When I was in a Facebook group that was like probably mostly East Asians who were really speaking up against affirmative action. And I really was wondering how to communicate to these kinds of people, the need to emphasize that affirmative action is important for our communities as well. Um, do you have any opinions about that? Um, I do try to, um, I saw a really great presentation um, by Rob Ter Professor not Rob Teranishi in the Department of Education here at UCLA, who pulled data um, from, from UC admissions to sh and showed, right, the declining uh, admission rates for Asian Americans since the revert, since we've eliminated um, affirmative action um, uh, with Prop 209. And so I think that there's, there's real data to show, right, that contrary to popular belief that Asian Americans are being disadvantaged by affirmative action policies, um, that th the, the, these issues that, that East Asian in particular, I think, you know, families care about, which is getting their children into prestigious schools, um, that affirmative action policies are protecting um, their families, Asian American families overall, um, uh, rather than disadvantaging them. Um, and so I think there is real data to show that. Um, even outside of any anecdotal stories that they've heard from an admissions director who said that they've eliminated applicants just on the basis of the fact that they are, that they're Asian. Um, you know, and so I think, you know, that's the new way that I'm trying to, um, personally, that I've been trying to argue. I mean, I, I don't know if I've ever found that the kind of historic argument of talking about, you know, really, you know, how affirmative action policies have, you know, led to um, 
entry of Asian Americans into, you know, social service jobs, education early in our history <laughs> um, has really worked because I think so much of our community wasn't here in the United States in the you know 40s, 50s, and 60s um, when affirmative actions really started to be implemented. Um, and so trying to then maybe use admissions data to show uh, that actually it's the reverse of what you think, that perhaps maybe that would actually be more convincing then I think what the typical thing that we use, which is we talk about the kind of longstanding civil rights movement and the importance of communities of color, right? You know, benefiting from the civil rights um, um, messages. I was talking to one of um, uh, our PhD students who's has been working uh, for many years for a consulting firm, um, a political consulting firm in Washington, D.C. And um, this was, I just used that phrase. You know, he was saying that one of the things that, he's learned is that they have trained, they train their different um, clients about how to make yourself the protagonist of the story. And so he was saying that this is one of the things that conservatives have been really good about doing, but liberals have not. So he's working for this liberal organization to try to say, because liberal and progressive organizations, we always talk about the abstract. And I think he's completely right. We talk about the abstract. We talk about like equality, Right. Um, and the importance of diversity and the importance of, you know, democracy. Right. All these kinds of so we talk about these really abstract ish, uh, you know, co concepts, which is why, you know, the, you know, we feel that you should join the progressive movement. But for, you know, an everyday person like that's not speaking to their actual needs. Right. So they in other words, so they don't see themselves in the message about the importance of diversity. This is the the power, I think, of. Of, you know, kind of white supremacy in our world, right, is that, you know, we just, we have been, we've trained ourselves um, to not hear, right, about, you know, why we are, um, we gain, right, from diversity, that, um, that you don't see automatically yourselves a protagonist, right, that you kind of automatically kind of get that uh, instantaneous kind of gut check about, you know, but it should be about meritocracy, it should be about all these other things, um, which is, you know, spoken to the, you know, kind of speaking to the power um, of, of the, um, you know, I think in many ways, conservative messages that have been more powerful. Um, and so, you know, I think the idea here for us, um, and, and I, and I really agree with, with um, our student is that, you know, putting ourselves and thinking about and speaking more directly, right, about, you know, kind of our individual stories and what, you, you know, you would actually benefit from is something that, our liberal or progressive movements should be better about doing um, and to what extent we can retrain ourselves, right, to kind of maybe adopt a toolkit that's been really well honed um, amongst conservatives um, and try to see to what extent we can do that for the progressive left. That's such a good point. Yeah, I mean, I that's kind of the um, question I was going to ask about because um, we we've invited on our show activist candidates now for office, and now you as an academic. Um, how do you think we can better collaborate as progressives? Um, whether you are running for office, or you're out there in the streets, or you are in academia doing research, um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm really kind of rolling around this kind of idea of putting ourselves as the protagonist of the story. I mean, I think in specifically Asian America, I think we're, we're really, and on the progressive level, we're really bad about doing that. Um, I, you know, I'm not a marketing professional by nature. So, I mean, I, I, I think that this is one of the things that we could be better about incorporating some of our more kind of business 
graduates <laughs> um, to help us with, um, you know, but, you know, I, I was really struck because I had this conversation with my student about being the protagonist story. And then I was up in Sacramento listening to um, Asian Americans Advancing Justice talk about their um, policy agenda for the year. This is right before COVID hit. Actually, it was last January. Now, now that I'm thinking about it and I remember seeing through this presentation and they're saying like, this is what the Asian American agenda should be. And their issues were improving education for um, poor communities. Right. Um, um, I think there was some criminal justice reform things in there. So it was distinctly like the progressive, you know, kind of, you know, kind of more abstract and kind of progressive issues that they said that they, you know, that they really wanted Asian American to focus, focus on, um, you know, but then they were kind of talking about the different schools and stuff. And they were really highlighting, quite frankly, uh, Latino serving or African-American schools, right, that needed more services, that there were some ways in which we could assist in this general progressive movement left. Um, and I think that that is an important message for us to think about how we cohere as communities of color, because in general, uh, it will make us more, it would make the progressive movement more powerful for communities of color to see some things that are more in common. But I was really struck, especially right after hearing this conversation from my student about being the protagonist of the story. And it was really kind of striking because I was like, you know, where, where are the Asian Americans in this, right? So like, as we're telling the story about what are the progressive issues and you're talking about criminal justice reform, free lunch programs, et cetera, um, you know, how can they then, right, tell me as I'm sitting in this audience, like, right, how specifically as an Asian American, how is this going to help myself, my family, right? Um, and how does this emotionally make me want to give money or want to donate my time to do, right? And so that's what I was really, I mean, and I'm, I'm still really haunted by that experience just for myself, more of how then thinking about how, you know, as a political scientist, you know, we can develop research to help campaigns, right, to kind of move forward. Because I do think that there, there was something missing there. Um, because I even felt for myself, I was like, look, like, I, you know, I don't know how true, you know, as a progressive I felt very motivated, but as an Asian American, I'm not sure how motivated I felt. I feel that so much. I feel like first generation Americans and to a great extent, second generation Americans are really in survival mode. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they're not really like, they don't really, they haven't really had the luxury of thinking about like theories and ideals and whatnot. One person who is also an academic, she spoke about her mother-in-law saying, oh, well, I want, you know, I'm going to vote this way because I just want to save money. And then this person said, well, but it, it, this proposition is going to achieve this great thing. And then the mother-in-law was like, but I want to save money. <laughs> so I, so, so I really, uh, I really agree with you that people need to have different messaging that's catered to them. So for example, criminal justice reform, uh, putting pr people in prison is less expensive in the long run than providing services. That's how I have framed criminal justice reform to some people, even though for me, the greater issue is that it's just 
just a moral issue. But for for some people, they just need to hear, well, it's it's cheaper for you. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think knowing how to like message correctly in terms of each individual Asian American Pacific Islander group is, I think, I mean, it extends beyond even just um, Asian Americans, uh, Pacific Islander progressives. It's, it's every single voting block. How do you um, address that? It's human nature, too. It's like, mm-hmm. let's be real. Human, humans are, you know, selfish. I mean, well, I mean, I, yeah, and I think, you know, what we know, um, you know, uh, all the academic literature about what we know about, you know, kind of activists, um, academics, for us, the abstract is why we, you know, you get in, you, you get into the business, right? Yeah. So you really are, uh, you know, interested about um, equity and inclusion mm-hmm. and diversity, right? And, you know, and those are these issues that really got you inspired. And so, of course, because those are the ones that get us inspired, right? That's what we think can work for others, you know, but I think for us to think about that, that that's not, you know, that's why that there's a very small activist population and a very small academic population, mm-hmm. because we are actually a minority group, um, and I think that there, that's where I've realized even just for myself, you know, there's been a disconnect in how I talk to people about things because I do feel guilty of that, which is why I'm saying I'm not kind of trying to pick on any one group here. Cause I think I'm guilty of that myself, you know, that we talk about these, the importance of things in really abstract, using really abstract concepts. Um, and I'm increasingly thinking more and more about how, you know, that's just really going over people's heads. I and mean, there's, it's not, it's, and it's not something that really resonates because really when it comes to politics, I mean, you really have, and this is one of the things I think, unfortunately, what we've learned about the Trump administration is that, you know, if you can really uh, uh, emotionally or, or really uh, activate individually someone's, you know, um, commitment, you know, and identity, right, that they really will come out. They'll come out and vote. They'll come out and protest, right? They will do, they will, they, when they feel deeply impacted personally, they will respond. Um, and I'm not sure if we've made that connection in Asian America, right? In term, especially at the progressive, in terms of progressive Asian American politics, about trying to make that true individualized connection between the progressive movement and the the everyday lives of Asian America. Because I think in in general too, you know, yes, Asian America is socioeconomically diverse, but our median family income and education level is skewing higher, Mm -hmm. right? So the reality is, is that, what does that mean? That means we are skewing towards the more, you know, working middle-class, middle-class, upper-class segment of the economy, right? And so I think that this is a reality in terms of the types of messages that we need to be more mindful of. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit on Gio's point saying humans are selfish and say that um, humans are just trying to survive. And how do we market to that survival? Because, I mean, you don't care about politics if it doesn't affect you day to day. And we shouldn't expect immigrant communities or first or second generations to actually put that on our radar if, in fact, the government hasn't been working for them and still continues not to. I mean, I think that's part of the messaging that I think 
think um, that we as progressives need to do to understand that, you know, the, the social change that we're looking for is of benefit to everyone. I mean, it's something I think we all have to um, address. And yeah, so I'm glad that you brought it up. <laughs> so you spoke about wanting to see more voter outreach in AAPI communities, uh, more voter education. Is there anything else that you want to see in AAPI communities um, around politics? Um, I would, um, I mean, I think, you know, part of it is this is just generally going to be a um, generational transition uh, in the United States, but you know, I do think you know, I would you know, I think we would love to see more. As speaking as a college professor, um, you know, I would love to see the balance in terms of you know, if I, as I look at our Asian American students here at UCLA, you know, on balance, we have more Asian Americans on what we call this our south side of campus, which is the side of the campus that is engineering sciences, medical or health professions versus for what for us we call North Campus, which are those that study political science, public policy, you know, the arts, uh, you know, gender, immigration, et cetera, right? So kind of all of these kind of more social sciences and the humanities. You know, I think that, you know, for us, for me, you know, the college student environment, well, kind of biased because it kind of represents a very specific part of Asian America. Um, but it's also the Asian America that is going to become, you know, part of that, you know, kind of working professional class um, that I would hope that we could start seeing kind of more of a balance of Asian Amer of our Asian American students, right, kind of balancing more towards interests um, and in terms of their professional interests, their occupational interests, right, in joining things um, more geared towards um, civil society or community, you know, kind of community needs and public policy. Um, and I do think that that in some ways is cultural. Um, it's generational. Um, you know, I don't think that it's necessarily, I don't want to say it's like it's about Asian culture, but more about, as Albert was kind of talking about, you know, this kind of immigrant culture, right? So, you know, kind of being less about, um, financially surviving and making sure that your, your family and your children have a good job for a good income so that they can be socially mobile in the United States, right? For us to kind of get past that part of, of our community history, right? To start entering into a stage where we have folks uh, that, you know, really do want to commit themselves to public service, um, to our communities, right, to public policy reforms or any kind of issues. Um, and I do think that here in, in California, I definitely see, you know, many more Asian American students as a political scientist in my classes. But for example, I taught previously at um, North Carolina and then for 10 years in Boston. And it was very rare you know, to get um, an Asian American student um, in my class. Um, the total number of Asian American students who apply to study Asian American politics is very small um, in number, right? Um, you know, so I think that that's also kind of just giving you a general pulse um, about, you know, kind of what things people pay attention, you know, what young adults are paying attention to in terms of their 
professional um, and, you know, kind of adult interests. Um, and so I think, you know, just there's this kind of subtle cultural transition um, that I hope to help be a part of, but also I'm kind of waiting to, to happen here in terms of redirecting some of our community emphases less to you know your family and your family social mobility which which i'm not necessarily saying is something that i do think is some part of kind of a natural transition here in the united states but um you know but i do think that um until we see that um i don't necessarily think we're going to really see that change i mean i think this is what the latino community has done faster and because they're also an immigrant community, right, um, that came primarily after 1965. But you definitely see kind of much more of a pipeline in Latino Amer America, Latino America into, right, um, you know, kind of civil service, public service, community organizations, right? So you kind of see that transition. We see, you know, a lot more Latino students um, in political science classes, right? Sociology, you know, that, that kind of thing than I think you do see for Asian American students. So I just think as a college professor, I think that there is some, you know, kind of subtle things that I can see that is kind of part of just our individual level interests and the things that our families pay attention to that I think that we could do at, a, at, a, at an even more basic level, you know, thinking about how to talk to families. Speaking for myself, I mean, when I was growing up, I just didn't know about most jobs. And I certainly didn't know about public policy jobs. I didn't know most jobs other than doctor, lawyer, <laughs> <laughs> dentist, architect, <laughs> um, and, and small business owner. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, more, you know, more so in like in that true socialization of kind of thinking about families. And I think I think about this because I have a young daughter, um, you know, but my husband, who's a second generation Chinese American, you know, this is what he's always said. He said, you know, I mean, that was the two jobs you're supposed to be was a doctor or a lawyer, you know. So, I mean, I think that there's like a that's that's I think that there's it's kind of a joke, but there's also kind of like a, you know, in, in, you know, kind of, you know, um, in, in some ways kind of academic speak, empirical speak, like there's also a there there in terms of the empirical reality, right, of what is going on in families. Yeah, I, I did want to say, though, that um, when you mentioned the Latino pipeline into like, you know, um, civil service and stuff, that's great. But I also want to flag that there's also the pipeline where you get thrown into the establishment as part of the systems of oppression. And that's something where I think Asian Americans can be a part of. Um, and I'm just flagging it as, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this notion of being able to address these issues um, by uh, shifting the uh, occupations into more like urban planning and all these other things. I also want to say that um, as progressives, uh, we need to actually keep that progress going and pushing um, rather than um, essentially, because there's a lot of Asians I can think of that are in political positions of power and they just redo the same where you can get involved, but as progressives that quote unquote are radical. And I think that's the um, one of the important things I want to stress, I, I'm not sure what you think about that, but. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, you know, I think, you know, becoming, you know, um, part of um, institutions, you know, there's all, you know, there's, there's, there's a, you know, there, I mean, this is a longstanding reality that we, we do know, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a process of becoming more conservative because effectively what conservative is, is like, you know, maintenance of the status quo, right? Let's, I'm not saying necessarily we're like Republican conservatives, but yeah. the idea of, 
um, true conservatism, which is right, you know, kind of just kind of maintaining the same levels of power, the way that power is waged, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, we always do need to be mindful. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that it's, yeah. So I would agree that it's not so simple about like, let's, redirect some of the traffic right into <laughs> um into institutions i think that there's still an important um educational process that happens before we start putting people in places of power um but i i think you know just at, on a just on this kind of like more subtle level you yeah. know i think at the individual level yeah is, is just trying to transition our community to thinking about the broad range in which you really do have a lot of influence can, can really in many ways change the course of your family and your community's lives, right? That, um, you know, are part of doing things related to public service and civic engagement. Um, and that, you know, I think looking at our, just looking at, for example, what I can look at, which is like our student population, I think that that connection still hasn't quite been made. I mean, I think we still connect it with, you know, having specific socially mobile jobs that are affiliated with social mobility, individual level social mobility for your family. Um, and to kind of shift that narrative about thinking about, you know, helping your community also can also improve your own family and your community social mobility, right? Like that's actually yeah. a, it's a, it's a very different way of improving social mobility, but it's not the classic way of improving your social mobility. Yeah. And to that point, I think the trends is definitely changing because we've had the youngest Asian American assembly member, Alex Lee in SF, um, Bay area, Alameda County, I think. And we had the youngest like Asian woman, Asian American woman be mayor, um, in this past election cycle. So I think, you know, um, that, that idea is shifting, but I, I just definitely like, yeah, I'm glad that you, <laughs> uh, kind of agree on that point of making sure that, you know, we have that right education for, and I think that's the power of the institution. I mean, institutions typically have been used to keep people down and entrench people into these, um, systems. And so the other, the other reason why, uh, I'm so thrilled to be, you know, <laughs> in your department, Natalie, is because I, I feel, I don't want to speak on your department's behalf, but I, I feel like the Asian American Studies Department at UCLA and, and most Asian, uh, most ethnic studies centers uh, across you know the country are those places where people can get, you know, uh, um, the, the right education about these long-term social systematic um, changes that need to take place. But uh, I don't want to speak on your behalf, so... <laughs> What's heartening to me is that I think younger folks are getting past just identity politics. Yes. Not erasing identity, Mm -hmm. but embracing identity and working around issues. And I love it. That's that's a really important point. I'm glad you brought that up, Gian, because I think that's something that is kind of... um, yeah, I don't know. It's a political science, Natalie, how how much identity politics comes into play um, during. I, I'm pretty sure it really has a big effect during general elections. But I don't know, um, like what what the literature or what the what the general consensus is on identity politics. And I'm glad that we're moving past it, if possible. <laughs> I mean, the alternative uh, you know, interpretation is that, you know, I think. Um, Identity politics has always existed. 
Um, you know, it's just that um, it has it takes different forms at different times. Um, but I think if we can recognize that it, it's always been about identity. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of things that you could actually say is just inherently about a white identity. You know, even though it's been framed as a quote unquote, you know, policy issue, a larger level policy issue, um, you know, crime. <laughs> Welfare reform, you know, I mean, these, these things that you could say, you know, um, um, and so um, I agree that um, that dedicating your efforts, not necessarily into just protecting your own group, mm -hmm. but really about thinking about, um, you know, needs um, of a, of a community is a much more um, useful and I think productive way of thinking about it, about identity politics. Mm, yeah, I agree. I'm, I'm glad you brought that nuanced point. <laughs> um, yeah, so Natalie, would you like to leave us with a couple words of wisdom or food for thought for people to think about how the 2020 election went and what we can expect to see um, regarding your reports or what um, people should be thinking about um, based off what we discussed today? Yeah, I mean, I just I think I just close to just say that, you know, I hope Asian Americans um, are increasingly more aware about the political power that they can wield. Um, in our political system. Um, and it's being assisted by increasing media attention to Asian America. Um, but hopefully with this momentum, we will really continue to see that exponential rise in the total number of new voters, new Asian American voters added to the electorate, um, even for this you know, next and, and even future rounds. Really on the baseline for me, this is really about voice for Asian America, um, rather than specifically me advocating for a specific position, political position, but mm -hmm. really for Asian Americans to be able to exercise their voice in any way, shape or form that, you know, that they do have it. Right. Uh, yeah, these are very important um, things that you brought up. And um, I'm, I'm glad that you have that academic spin on it because um it's a, it's a balance i think how, how do we how do we work within the institutions to make the change how do you work in the streets to make the change and how do we work with um individuals to make those changes so i, I um yeah, i'm really happy to have you on board and uh discuss these um points so thank you very much natalie thanks so much it was great talking to you natalie yeah it was nice meeting you all right. Thank you very much. Yep. Thank you. All right. So um, that's it for now. Um, we'll see you all next week to talk about WhatsApp with mutual aid and the AAPI community. Um, the guest for that episode on January 25th will be Suzanne Park, who is the founder and editor of Ghidra magazine. Next week, we'll also have a different co-host instead of myself. It will be Rex Lee and Rex joins us from the San Francisco Bay Area, and he is a activist that is working around Viet Unity. We will hear more about him uh, as he introduces himself next time. So that pretty much wraps up this episode. Thank you very much for tuning in. Remember to leave us a comment on any of the platforms that you may be listening to us on. We enjoy reading your messages and hearing what you have to say. Remember to also like and retweet the podcast on Twitter and other social media accounts. Also, to make things easier, we will be launching a website very soon. And that's WhatsApp this week. See you next time.